Take me back to 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter in chapter number 2. We looked this morning, we began to look at continuation of this word submission. We saw last week submitting to the authorities God's placed over us in realms of government. We saw this morning submitting to the authorities God's placed above us in realm of our employers or, or in that day, masters to servants. And then I closed out this morning by sharing with you just for a second in verse 21 that Christ has left us the example. So how do I know what submission that God accepts? How do I know what it looks like? Well, if Christ is the example, how many agree we need to know what the submission of Christ looked like? That's what these verses deal with. Verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on a tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now. How many of you glad for the but are now? Return unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And I'm going to be honest with you. I could preach a whole message on that last phrase. But I'm not going to. But let's pray. Father, please use this in our lives tonight. And Father, let us see submission as you see it. For your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. And all God's children said... Amen. I've entitled this sermon this, The Greatest Miracle of Christ. The Greatest Miracle of Christ. How many of you agree that Christ performed many miracles? The raising of the dead. You say, that's got to be the greatest miracle. I don't believe it is. The healing of the blind. You say, that's got to be the greatest miracle. I don't believe it was. The healing of the lame. That's got to be the greatest. No, I don't believe it was. You say, well, preacher, what do you think the greatest miracle is? I believe it's found in this passage. And that's what I want to deal with tonight. Is what I believe is the greatest miracle of Christ. And I'll show you what that is in just a moment. But I want us to begin, we saw in verse 21 that we have been called to this submission. Submission to the authorities above us, and we've been called to that. Just as you were called to your salvation, in your salvation you are called to submit. But then he gives Christ as the example. Why are we to submit to those that harshly treat us if they have been placed over us? Because Christ suffered for us. And he left us an example, verse 21, 
that you should follow in his steps. Now, I want to kind of give a word about that, and then we're going to move on. When it says you ought to follow in his steps, it's simply saying this. You ought to let Christ be who he is in you. Because I promise you, if you try to mimic what Christ did, you're going to practice an exercise in futility. But how many of you agree, if Christ was able to be an example of submission, then he is still able to work that in you and work that in me. And that's what this is saying. Now, he begins to unpack the depth of this submission of Christ. And he begins with the complete perfection of Christ. Because he says in verse 22, who did no sin. And what he's saying here, this is the essence of his person. In other words, if you don't believe you can do things right and still have suffering, then you need to look to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ did no sin. Now, we could get into all the theological explanations of that, which I've done with you many times before. But let me just say it this way. When it says he knew no sin, it's not just meaning in his acts. He, he never committed a sin in his acts. How many of you agree with that? Say amen. But he never knew no sin in his thoughts, in his heart, in his desires, in his longings. Christ knew no sin, and yet Christ suffered even though he did everything perfect. And so some people have this idea. Matter of fact, we're teaching in America today this idea, what I call a shallow, really a heresy of a theology that says that if you have faith or you're trusting God, then guess what? Nothing bad will happen to you. I got news for you. They need to read the words of the Lord Jesus. Because the words of the Lord Jesus is what? In this world you will have tribulation. That's a promise just as much as I'll be with you and I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Matter of fact, if you are walking in holiness, the Bible says you will know persecution. Now, in America, persecution is so much tamer than anywhere else in the world. But yet, at the same time, we need to understand that because Christ suffered, and Christ lives in us, and Christ lives through us, we too are going to be mistreated. And so, you see the essence of his person. Then you see the expression of his person. And Peter through the Holy Spirit, puts his finger on one aspect, one aspect of his perfection. Now, he could have dealt with a myriad of things to prove that Christ knew no sin. But he puts his finger on one specific aspect. Why? Because it relates to this idea of submission. He said there was no guile found in his mouth. This was the expression of the person of the Lord Jesus. Now you say, what does this word guile mean? It means no deceit, no hypocrisy, no insincerity, no venom, no accusation. And here's what it says. Christ, 
in all respects to who he was, who knew no sin, told the truth about himself, and never ever left anyone with a false perception of who he was. Now I want to make a statement. What those around you that do not know Christ, know about Christ, is what they hear and see in you. So I ask this question, are we telling the truth about who Jesus is? That's what this word guile means. There was no guile in his mouth. There was no hypocrisy or deceit in his mouth. And this is the complete perfection of Christ. So this man who did nothing against anyone, the myriads of people yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. This is the complete perfection of Christ. But now, here's what I believe is the greatest miracle of Christ. It's what I call the constraining passion of Christ. Because it says here in verse 23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. The constraining passion of Christ. One Bible scholar made this statement. The greatest evidence of the life of the Lord Jesus in the believer is the constraint through the grace of God through which they show and how they respond to mistreatment. This Bible scholar said that's the greatest evidence of the life of Christ in the believer. And I would say to you this, that I believe this is the greatest miracle of Christ, that Christ had a constraint about him. That when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he, being Christ, suffered, he threatened not. Now you say, well, unpack this. What does this mean? Here's what it means. It means at no point during the crucifixion or the trial that led up to the crucifixion did the Lord Jesus ever try to defend himself, try to claim his rights, Never threatened, and you say, what does that mean? Never said, hey, if you don't stop this, the judgment of God's going to fall on you right here, right now. Not in one moment did he ever do that. Not one moment did he ever try to show them that, hey, you're crucifying a man who knew no sin. Never did he do that. But can I tell you, his life said what his words would never have to say. You say, how do you know that? Because even Pilate said three times, I don't find no fault in him. And yet the crowd yelled louder. Crucify him. Crucify him. How many of you agree Christ could have gave him a dissertation on the law and truth and holiness and who he was? And yet Christ never did. How many of you agree when you're the weakest physically, you're the most vulnerable to temptation. When you're the weakest physically, you're the most vulnerable to respond in your flesh. Would you not agree with me that what all Christ went through, they tried to push him to the point of absolute 
weakness. And yet Christ never responded. So what do you think the greatest miracle of Christ is, preacher? That Christ as man, in his humanity, even though he was 100% God, he was living as 100% man. Christ as man constrained himself and never responded in a defensive way to what he was falsely accused of. Because remember, what they accused him of was a lie. And yet Christ submitted. And don't you think that they crucified him against his will? The Bible clearly says he laid down his own life. You say, well, preacher, how do you know he laid down his own life? Oh, listen, turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 26. I'm, I'm going to show you this because I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 26, and look at verse 52. This is when the disciple cut the ear of Malchus off. Here's how Jesus responded to that. When they came to arrest him. Verse 52, then Jesus said unto him, Put up again thy sword into thy, his place. For all that they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. Thinkest thou not, I cannot... Now pray to my Father, and he shall presently, presently give me more than twelve legion of angels. But how then shall the Scripture be filled? That thus it must be. What is twelve legions of angels? Seventy-two thousand angels. Hey, I want to tell you something. It only took one angel that went through Egypt and took the firstborn. Christ said I could call 72,000 right now. Let me tell you what that means. Christ could have brought Armageddon to this world right then. But in submission to his Father, and in submission to the will of God, Christ did not respond. The greatest miracle of Christ. And the great of, greatest evidence of Christ in you is when you and I respond the same way as Christ responded. But only through Christ is that possible. You see, this is the great miracle of the Lord Jesus, the constraining passion of Christ. But let me show you thirdly, the confident peace of Christ. Look at verse 23, the bottom. He threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Now I want you to see here what, it, what it's saying. How many agree that they, being the religious leaders of that day, they were judging him unjustly? But see, Christ wasn't worried about what they were doing. Because Christ had already committed. What's that word commit? He had handed over himself. 
unto the one that judges righteously, his father. In other words, he said, listen, father, they can do to me whatever you have orchestrated for them to do to me. They can nail me to a cross. They can beat me. They can pull my beard out. They can put a crown of thorns upon me. Hey, they can revile me. They can curse me. They can spit on me. But can I tell you today, father, I'm in your hands and you're going to make right what man makes wrong. How can I not respond in the flesh when you hand yourself over to the Father? Now, let me tell you something. For me to hand myself over to Him in every circumstance and every situation of life is me to never, ever take up my own defense. How many of y'all like to argue? Now, come on, let's just be honest in here tonight. Some of us like it. Matter of fact, we like it so much, we try to prod to get it. Now, we'd never say that, but we do. And you say, why do you like it? Because you want to be able to express your opinion. Y'all say amen. amen. We want to stand up and be counted. My opinion matters. And I'm going to let them know what I think. Aren't you glad Christ didn't do that? How many agree he's the only one that had all the answers? And yet he never answered. The constraining passion of Christ was due to what? His confident peace in his Father. Father, they think they're in control. Remember what he told Pilate? He said, you may think you have power, but any power you got, my Father gave to you. Father, they may think they're in control, but I know really who's in control. And I hand myself over to you. And can I tell you today, that is the only way that Christ as man could have endured what he endured. If he didn't have 100% confidence in his father, I promise you, he could have never done what he did. No way, shape, or form. Psalm 37, verse 5 and 6, Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as light, and thy judgment as noonday. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are concerned about your name? Your reputation? What other people think about you? Can I give you some love? Why don't you give all that to God and let God take care of that for you? You say, God will do that for me? He will. 
That don't mean you go out and try to needle people. That's not what I'm saying at all. But here's what I'm saying. You and I obey God. You let God work out the rest of it. I want to tell you something. God will defend you far greater than you could ever defend yourself. Now, he might do, not do it in the way your flesh thinks. But see, you're never going to submit to the authorities God's put you under. Whether you agree with them or don't agree with them. You're never going to submit that if you think you have the right to do what you want to do. Listen. We always say Christ died for us. And I want to tell you today, you better praise God he did. But can I tell you what he did before he died for us? He died in obedience to his father. The outflow of him dying in obedience to his father was we got in on what he did. In other words, the motivation of Christ was not just us. The motivation of Christ was his Father. The outflow of what, what he did in obedience to his Father is you and I got in on that redemption. Christ had a confident peace that allowed him to submit. Well, look fourthly at the crucified person of Christ. who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on a tree. A couple of things real quick here, the means of his sacrifice. This word bear simply means to carry as a sacrifice. It, it, it points to this, in his own body. What does that mean? It speaks of the scapegoat. With the scapegoat on the day of atonement, the, the priest would the high priest would confess all the broken laws of God upon the head of the scapegoat, and that scapegoat would be taken far out into the wilderness, far out in the desert, and that rope would be released from his neck, and with no water, no substance, no food, that scapegoat, with all the sins of Israel confessed upon the head of that scapegoat, by himself he would bear the sins of Israel, and by himself he would die. In the wilderness. This is the means through which Christ was our sacrifice. No one else, no animal, no person could take the sins of all mankind other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ died for us. That's the means. But here's what I want to spend just a second on. The magnitude of his sacrifice. Now remember, we're, we're talking about when we are treated wrongly by those that are above us. How do we respond in submission? I want you to see the magnitude of what Christ went through. It says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on a tree. Now, let me tell you why that's important. If you know anything about Judaism, Judaism did not use as a primary judgment crucifixion 
Judaism used stoning as the primary judgment. But if they viewed the offense of the one that was going to be judged to be exceptionally evil, they would hang them on a tree. And God even spoke of this in Deuteronomy. Let me read it to you real quick. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23. If any man have commit a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree. Let me tell you something. You want to know why Christ was buried that night, that day? To be obedient to what God said in Deuteronomy. But listen to what it says. But thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. Why? For he that hangs is a curse of God. That the land be not defiled which the Lord God has given you for an inheritance. In other words, here's what God said. If someone's created an egregious evil deed or sin, whereby you must hang him on a tree, you bury him that day. Because if you don't, he's a curse of God and everything around the land that he stands on, the land that that tree is on, It'll be accursed if you don't bury him that day. Jesus Christ hung on a tree. So what was the magnitude? Oh, it wasn't he was just a malefactor. It wasn't that they just said he broke the law. Hey, I want to tell you something. They viewed him as the vilest of all. And they crucified him according to how they viewed him. And yet here's a man who knew no sin and did nothing wrong to anyone. And Christ voluntarily gave himself to this. You say, what was so vile? Oh, nothing about Jesus. But I promise you, your sin and my sin was vile. And Christ was going to take our sin upon himself. And this was the magnitude. Now watch this. Fifthly, the cleansing provision of Christ. The Bible says for verse, bottom of verse 24, that we, being dead to sin, should live under righteousness. Why did the Lord do this? Why did the Lord submit to being wrongly accused and wrongly killed from man's standards? Because it was the only way we could be delivered. The Bible says when we were lost, we were bound in our sin. The Bible says when we were lost, we were dead in our sin. But the Bible says for those that are saved, we went from being dead in our sins to dead to our sins. You say, preacher, what is that? That's complete deliverance. You say, well, preacher, I still sin. You do, I do. But when you sin and I sin, we sin against the very work of Christ that he accomplished at Calvary. 
He bare our sins in his own body on a tree that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. Hey, I want to tell you something. When you were dead in your sins, righteousness could not be accomplished in your life. I have people all the time over the years tell me, you know, preacher, I'm a good person. Now, I used to be mean. I'm not as mean as I used to be. Used to, I'd look at them and say, no, you're not. Now, just occasionally, I'll say that. Because the Bible says there's none good. No, not one. And so even the religious deeds of one that is dead in their sins is still defiled. But yet when Christ came alive in us at salvation, we were no longer dead in our sins. He quickened us, made us alive. And can I tell you today, now we're alive to live in the righteousness of God. Not to live just under the righteousness of God. Listen, I'm glad that we're under the righteousness of God. I'm glad the righteousness of God was imputed and parted. And therefore, God sees us in the righteousness of Christ. I'm glad that the righteousness of Christ is the umbrella through which God sees us. But I got news for you. That just gets you to heaven. But here's the reality. That makes you fit for heaven, but don't make you fit for earth. Here's what makes you fit for earth. Not only was the righteousness of Christ placed over you and in you, and God sees you through the righteousness of Christ, but the righteousness of Christ was placed in you, that it could come out of you, and now you can live in righteousness here on earth. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven. But the only way that was possible is Christ submitted to wrongful treatment. But there's a continuing deliverance. He says, by whose stripes you are healed. This is a quotation from Isaiah 53. Y'all know that. And listen. Y'all should also know that this does not mean your physical healing. What's the context in which this is given? He bore our what? I didn't hear you. He bore our what? That we may be dead to what? He bore our... That we may be dead to, but alive unto... By whose stripes you are healed. You see, the healing in which Christ came to do was not a physical healing, it was a spiritual healing. The context is sin. The context is righteousness. And this is in a tense, which means this, that we are constantly, continuously being delivered. When God saved you, He delivered you. But how many of y'all still sin? Raise your hand. So how many agree you need daily cleansing? This is what Christ does. Moment by moment, day by day. 
Sixthly, the converting power of Christ. Look at verse 25. For you were, past tense, as sheep going astray. But are now returned. Two quick things. I'm going to do this real quick, okay? The rescuing of the sheep. You were a sheep going astray. Jesus said this in Matthew 9, 36. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Let me tell you something about sheep. When they venture off to explore their independence, if someone doesn't find them, they will never, ever, ever find their way back home. They will die. They'll get tired, and here's what will happen. When they get tired, they'll lay on their side. When they lay on their side, they'll, they'll end up flipping on their back. When they flip on their back, the, because of the way their body is made, they cannot get back on their feet. And they will lay there, and their, and their legs will become stiff, and their legs will become so till they cannot switch back over and get on their feet, and they'll lay there and die every single time. And so here's the way Jesus saw the multitude in the Gospels. As a... As sheep that had no shepherd, as sheep that had no way, as sheep that didn't know where they were going. They were wearing away and walking in a way that was going to lead to their own destruction, and they didn't even realize they were walking in it. And yet Jesus Christ, the shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, he was there all along, and he was ready to go find them, bring them to himself, and be a shepherd to a sheep that didn't have a shepherd. And that's what God did when he saved you. You didn't go looking for him. He went and looked for you. You say, why didn't I go look for him? Because you were a sheep that didn't have a shepherd. You didn't know where you were going. You didn't know the road you were traveling in. Matter of fact, you probably didn't even consciously where you were lost. And for some of us in here, you may have already been on your back and your, and your legs were starting to stiff up spiritually. The rescuing of the sheep. The repentance of the sheep. But are now returned unto. This word returned is the root of the word repentance. But lastly, the continuing protection of Christ. Returned what? Unto the shepherd and bishop. Of your souls. The word shepherd is translated this way. Pastor. The word bishop is translated this way. Overseer. So there's a continuing perfection that goes on. When God saved you. Christ went out and found you. In the wilderness. He brought you unto himself. He put you in his fold. He became your shepherd. No wonder David said, the Lord is my what? But let me tell you what happened. In becoming your shepherd, he became your pastor of your soul. He became the overseer of your soul. You say, preacher, what does that mean? 
He became the teacher of your mind, the teacher of your will. He became the one that taught you how to live, how to act in Him. But yet, here's the thing. As the overseer, as the bishop of your soul, here's what it means. It means this, that when you get out of line, He became the one that showed you you're out of line. You would think a sheep that had no shepherd that was rescued from the wilderness would never, ever want to venture off again. But they do. What does a shepherd do? Well, I rescued them once. Let them have at it. No. The Bible says the shepherd will leave the 90 and 99 and go and find the one. And if he finds the one laying on his back and the legs begin to be stiff, he pulls a flask out that has oil on it, represents the Holy Spirit, begins to rub the joints of the leg of that sheep with that oil, then picks that sheep up, puts him over his shoulders, and carries that sheep till his joints are made limber again until he can walk on his own. And he carries that sheep and carries that sheep. And if he ventures off again, he'll take his staff and break the hind leg of the sheep. The, the sheep can't walk. And he'll carry that sheep until his leg is healed. And that sheep will eventually learn the only way, the only hope is my shepherd. God does that every day for you. Sometimes he has to break your leg, not physically, but through circumstances. He has to bring you to brokenness. Sometimes he has to bring you to a place where you can't look up but nowhere but the shepherd. Sometimes he has to bring you to a place of desperation. Why? Because then and then alone you realize you only have one shepherd, and it's not self, it's the Savior. But as time goes, the more and more you grow, the more you fall in love with your shepherd. Why? Oh, he's so good to me. He's a pastor that teaches me. He's a pastor that equips me. He's an overseer that shows me. Can I ask you a question? How many of you, when you were growing up, when you don't know what you know now, how many of you, when you were growing up and your parents tried to dictate your life, did you get mad at them? Yeah. You know why? Because you didn't know what you were doing. Amen. But how many of you now look back? Say, praise God. Well, can I tell you, Jesus does for you what no parent could ever do for you. He's the shepherd. The overseer of your soul. Not just your body. Your soul, your mind, your emotions, and your will. And all that's possible. Why?
because Jesus volitionally gave himself to the mistreatment of mankind. And never reviled, never judged, never threatened. Matter of fact, on the contrary, he said, Father, what? For they know not what they do. What was he saying? Oh, they're a sheep without a shepherd. They don't know what they're doing. You say, how could he do that? Because he handed himself over to the one that judged righteously. And he knew that even if man treated him wrongly, God the Father would always treat him rightly. Say, preacher, have you arrived at this? Absolutely not. Am I still learning this? I absolutely am. You say, how do you know? Because there's sometimes I respond wrongly. Are y'all there? Say amen. You say, preacher, I wish you wouldn't tell us this about yourself. Well, guess what? I put my britches on the same you do. But I want you to listen to me. You may look at this and you say, this is just out of bounds, over the top. No, I want to tell you what the Bible calls this. Normal Christian living as God sees it. Because all it is is Christ. Father, I love you, I praise you, and I thank you. I thank you that you can work this in us, you can work this out of us, and you can work this through us. Father, like what Christ went through, Father, in so much of a lower scale, Sometimes we're mistreated. Sometimes we're not understood. Sometimes we have our ways set in our mind. And in our mind we think, who in the world would dare tell me to do something against what I want to do? Father, I praise you that Christ didn't have that mindset. Because if there was any self about Christ, Father, there would be no way, knowing everything about us, he would ever have took our place on the cross. Lord, I praise you. But you're more than just an example. You are our life and our life source. So, Father, I pray that tonight we've gleaned from what biblical submission looks like as you see it through the lens of the Lord Jesus. And I'll thank you and I'll praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's children said...